The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, September 27th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I will now quote a tweet. It's from the account at real Donald Trump. If that perfect phone call with the president of Ukraine isn't considered appropriate, then no future president can ever again speak to another foreign leader. Mm -hmm. If my golf courses and hotels are sold out from under me, then no president can ever sell a stake with his name on it again. Great logic. Even Bill Clinton never claimed that what was at stake was the future of sex in the Oval Office. Maybe if he did, Trump wouldn't have run. But just as there are some bad, really bad defenses out there, doesn't mean that there aren't any. Oh, I'm not going to say good defenses. I'm going to say defenses of the president's misbehavior that could carry the day among those who want to hear what they deem a good defense. The chief one is this. It's that investigating Joe Biden and Hunter Biden had some legitimacy. Because if you convince people that it had some legitimacy, then everything that stems from the impetus to investigate them is more or less legitimate. I don't think it's legitimate. I don't think there's any legitimacy to an investigation into Hunter Biden. The European Union didn't think it was legitimate. The IMF didn't think it was legitimate. No real journalist who looked into the situation thought it was legitimate. But what am I saying? I'm just saying that people like me and institutions who think like I think, think like I think. I am not saying that the in the bag Trump wads out there will believe or repent, or even if it matters what they really believe, they probably just think the ends justify the means. They'll believe anything. But I mean, and I worry, that a critical mass of Republican senators will cling to the idea that there was legitimacy in investigating Hunter Biden, because once they cling to that idea, then you cannot convict. And it is already happening within the conservative intelligentsia. Here is Republican consultant Luke Thompson on the National Review Editor's Roundtable podcast. Nobody asked the Ukrainians to prosecute Hunter Biden. What was asked is, is there a there there? Talk to my lawyer, talk to the DOJ, and if there is a there there, then we can pursue the American end of this. Then we can dig into it. It is not unreasonable for the president of the United States before launching what will be perceived as a hyper-politicized investigation to go to people uniquely positioned to say there's substance there or there's not substance there and ask those people, is there anything there? And frankly, given that the missiles are so desperately needed, this is a pretty light ask. I disagree. More than disagree. I think what he said was a skewed interpretation. But I do think it will be the main talking point. The Republicans already tried quid pro quo like they tried no collusion. And that's not going to work in this case because there was a quid pro quo. In Thompson's argument, he admits to a quid pro quo, right? Listen, think about it. He's saying the quid pro quo was legitimate. Their argument is the thing that you're asking for had legitimacy. Then the whole discussion, not in my world, not in your world, but to the Republican jurors and their constituents in that world, the whole discussion comes down to a referendum on Hunter Biden, who, to be clear, did not escape prosecution out of any Ukrainian corruption, but does have issues, has made poor life choices, and pertinent to the case at hand, was only working in Ukraine because of nepotism. 
That becomes the Republican out. Now, maybe you've heard the sentiment that of the 53 Republicans who will be the jurors in this case, should it come to impeachment, and it should, maybe you've heard that most of them don't much like Trump. Jeff Flake said so. He was talking to What Next's Mary Harris at the Texas Tribune Festival. The full interview of that will be uh, Monday's What Next from the Slate family of podcasts. But here was what Flake said today. Oh, somebody mentioned uh, yesterday that uh, if there were a private vote, that there'd be 30 Republican votes. Uh, that's not true. There'd be at least 35. <laughs> okay. I want to analyze this. I'm fascinated by this. I don't doubt it, though people have the tendency to think that their position is the majority one. But okay, maybe it's not 30, maybe it's not 35, but it's some significant number. But here's how the argument is meant to land. It's either comforting to liberals or when Flake's saying it, I think it's somewhat exculpatory of Republicans. Look, we're really good people, blah, blah, blah. But mostly... It's a thing of hope for anyone who really wants conviction, right? It's used to say, well, we can be hopeful. I mean, these guys in their hearts of hearts, they want Trump convicted. They just need a little nudge to get there. I think that the true interpretation is about 180 degrees from that sentiment. First of all, if you take that figure, 35 Republicans would secretly vote to convict, but won't actually vote to convict. What it tells me is that they won't actually vote to convict. If you want conviction, you shouldn't want a situation where the adjudicators are making judgments based on political calculations, because the political calculations won't change. The facts have changed. The facts of this Ukrainian case are different, and in fact, better for conviction. But if conviction rests on someone who is making a political calculation, those facts won't matter. You would rather have a quorum of Republican senators who literally saw the Mueller report and said, honestly, well, I don't think this gets there. I don't think this is worthy of conviction because the evidence this time is a lot cleaner and a lot stronger. You'd even rather have a bunch of senators who would vote in secret to keep the president because he helps their agenda. In fact, you would rather have a bunch of senators who wouldn't secretly vote against him would secretly vote for him, but for the reason that they think he helps them. In other words, you'd rather have senators who are making an amoral calculation because that calculation that the president helps them is becoming less and less true. He's not the help he once was. Furthermore, a senator who would vote secretly to convict, but not publicly to convict, is what we would call a bad person. And that bad person is unlikely to be swayed by new evidence. The thing that changes a bad person has nothing to do with the strength of evidence. Someone who still has the possibility, however, of being won over by how shocking and outrageous the president acted, that person is likely to vote for conviction. I mean, right now, let's take Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton seems like the last person who would ever defect from Trump. But we do know that Tom Cotton is a person who really does take honor and presidential responsibility seriously, whereas some random garden variety U.S. senator like Mike Crapo might be the kind who is thrown in with Trump as pure politics, and therefore he is unreachable no matter what the ethical argument is. True believers are hard to convince, but when they are convinced, they break hard. Political calculators are impervious to being convinced. Their stance is not based on the stated question at hand. So what I'm saying is, to get a true conviction, you might want to target the senators 
who are indeed operating out of true conviction. On the show today, a spiel. Wait, did we just hear a spiel? Okay, it will be shorter, shorter than that analysis of what Republicans are thinking. It's more like a conceptual framework comparing the whistleblower to our last national boyfriend. But first, in 2013, 1,300 works by masters like Matisse, George Gross, and Manet were discovered in the home of Cornelius Gerlitt. Cornelius's father, Hildebrand Gerlitt, was one of Hitler's art dealers. Indeed, those works were looted. They were often seized or bought for pennies on the Reichsmark, having been declared degenerate art. The author and journalist Mary Lane tells the story of these works and of Hitler's eye and gut for art. It's in the book, Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art and the Soul of the Third Reich. Mary Lane, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In publishing, more books have been written about Hitler than anyone other than Abraham Lincoln. Well, at least among people who aren't Jesus. Now, with so much written about Hitler, you would think the definitive work that looks at Hitler through the prism of art would exist. I don't know. Maybe there are some other extant works that try to do this. But Mary Lane's new book, Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art and the Soul of the Third Reich, out now, does it really quite exquisitely. She talks about how Hitler was motivated by art, was enraged by art, was driven by the fact that he was denied to become an artist, and then she follows what happens to the art that Hitler looted. These are stories that she was reported for the Wall Street Journal, and again, she is out now with this new book, Hitler's Last Hostages. Thanks for coming by, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. So Hitler thought of himself as an artist first and a politician second. I guess he was pretty terrible at both, although hurt fewer people with his art. Uh, yeah, no, he was. Uh, 
it's it's really funny because he was quite blunt about that. And there's a lot of documentation, direct quotes and accounts of his saying, I consider myself an artist first and I'm a politician to further art and culture. Historically, people who have studied art in academia, not all of them, but many of them have tended to be women and gay people. And they were sort of marginalized and poo-pooed by people who studied military history, which was considered a more, quote unquote, serious, virile topic. Right. But Hitler's wanted to be a military artist. He announced his intention as a teenager, right, to paint battle scenes. Exactly. Yeah. He, he got we know it. we know him now as like this very stilted, I don't know, insofar as we know him, the reputation is just very stilted, no humans in his pictures and like straight lines, pretty formally unexciting. But that was his ambition, military battle scenes. Yeah, it was. Uh, he When he went to, um, I mean, he was rejected from art school, as everybody knows. To be fair, the number of people who got into art school at the time was extremely low. So there were probably plenty of, you know, normal people who who got rejected, you know, and just didn't have the cut. But the problem that the professors there saw with him was that he couldn't relate to other humans and he was very bad at painting humans. So he was very good at painting, you know, architecture and, and landscapes and stuff, but he didn't have that human connection to be able to sort of accurately and convincingly portray humans. But he wanted to. I mean, he he was he was was driven to do this. And also he was now you tell me he hated abstract painting. He hated anything that was um, maybe made you think and pulled you a little bit outside the literal. Was this a deeply held passion, do you think? Or was this in the service of his politics? No, I think he always did because he had this very rigid idea of, you know, that that art should portray exactly what is out there and and should portray reality almost in a photorealistic sort of way. And so, you know, the fact that the Impressionists were, as the name says, giving an impression of something rather than the you know, literal reality is something that really upset him. I mean, even when he was a Führer, and he went to a Hitler Youth sort of rec center. He got very furious when he saw a child drawing a dog as a, as green because there aren't green dogs. So even for little children, not portraying exact precise reality was considered anathema to him. So you say that he liked almost a realistic or photorealism art. But on the other hand, a lot of the art that he did like that valorized the German spirit had a comic book quality to it. It couldn't really be called realistic. A lot of the art that kind of forefronted how great the Aryan race was. Yeah, I mean, when he said, re- when, when I say realistic, it, he he sort of wants it to portray how he thinks things should look. So realistically, war, for example, is dirty, messy. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of trauma. And that was portrayed by a lot of artists like George Gross and Otto Dix, whom we talk about in the book. But he didn't he he thought that that war should be the realistic side of war should be that it, there's a lot of valor and no one on his side ever gets killed. So, yeah, when you look at, you know, the battle scenes that he has or scenes of soldiers getting ready to go into battle that he featured in his great German art exhibition in 1937, it it, it is a very sort of comic book type superhero portrayal of war. Yes. Almost like a little boys. So one thing. I think we've been kind of talking around is the place, the primacy of art in the culture. Did Hitler care more about it than the average German? Yes, yes. He was obsessed with art. But was he so far off? Was he an order of magnitude? Was he a standard deviation away from the average German? This obsession with visual art. 
if someone was obsessed with visual art in 2019, a politician trying to harness the culture through visual art, it would be, you know, a waste of time mostly. Was art a bigger deal in Germany in 1934 than it is now? Yeah, I think that is true, but I think it's partially because YouTube videos certainly didn't exist at the time, and the main medium for entertainment was still visual art. Movies did exist, but people weren't going to them with the frequency that they do now. I think you can see parallels of Hitler's obsession with visual art with a lot of obsession that, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of alt-right people have with shows like The Handmaid's Tale or with you know, the fact I remember when the Wonder Woman movie came out, there were a lot of alt-right people online and even some politicians who were like, this is, you know, completely unrealistic that a woman could have this much power and be this <laughs> strong. It's not and as I realistic was like, as Batman. Guys. I know. I thought that was super <laughs> odd because it's a it's a superhero movie. You know, yeah. Batman's also not okay, realistic. I think we can all agree that Aquaman could talk to fish and that's <laughs> It's the power of the yellow sun. It's just science. But Wonder Woman, come on. Yeah, I, I found that very, very odd. So I think... Like, males can bust ghosts, but everyone knows the female anatomy does not yield itself to ghost busting. Exactly. So at the time, people were very concerned with, with visual art being, you know, much like people are concerned on the far right with, with you know, movies now. So a major, if not the major, strain of the book is about Hitler's art collector, is curator, and you've done some great reporting about this in the past. Gerlitt, how does, uh, well, it's not him, it's it's a them, it's a father and son. How, what's the interplay between the Gerlitz and the uh, Hitler's uh, art exhibition, the degenerate art exhibition? Uh, what were the cross currents there? Yeah, Hildebrand and Cornelius Gerlitt, the father and son team, are definitely a major strain throughout the book because many of the artists that we talk about were in the 1,300 strong artwork collection that became public in 2013 that I wrote my series of stories for the journal on as their chief European art reporter. Hildebrand Gerlitt is a fascinating character because he actually, when he was serving in World War I, he hatched this idea that after the war, he wanted to become a museum director in an industrial town, so something sort of equivalent to Detroit, and teach people about how wonderful, you know, expressive contemporary art was and really reach out to the people. He did that. He worked in a town called Zwickau as their director, and he promoted female artists. He promoted minority artists. He was just really at the liberal forefront. And once Hitler took power, the, he actually just decided to work with the regime. He didn't have to, but a friend of his was the director of the Fuhrer Museum Project, which was Hitler's secret project to create a museum in Austria after the war with the best and most you know, Aryan art on display, and then simultaneously also gather up and confiscate degenerate art so that that wouldn't be accessible to the public anymore. And Hildebrand worked as one of the top four dealers for the Fuhrer Museum project and not only got art uh, for Hitler for this, you know, future museum, but also was, you know, collecting either confiscated artwork or was buying it from people for pennies on the dollar who desperately needed money and really aiding Hitler. And he managed to trick the monuments men who did a heroic job, but they were understaffed. And yeah, these were the uh, were the American, mostly American. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were technically from several different countries, but mostly American. And 
it is actually a testament to the cultural foresight of American politicians at the time that they created the Monuments Men Project because never before in history had a victorious country created a project to protect the cultural assets of the, the countries that they had invaded and conquered. So the Monuments Men worked very hard, but unfortunately, Gurlitt did manage to deceive them and went undetected. And he died in a car crash in 1956. And his son, Cornelius, took over and spent his whole life as a hermit protecting this artwork. And he would sell off pieces at smaller auction houses in Germany or Switzerland for cash. And and he and his sister would just live off of that. And it was he basically just lived in his parents' apartment, didn't really change anything about it, and managed to escape detection for quite a while. Yeah, until... Well, in 2013, you broke a story on the cover of the journal. In 2012, the German tax authorities actually raided Cornelius Gerlitz's house and found this 1,300-strong collection of artwork. So there was a Matisse rolled up in a crate of tomatoes. There were works by um, George Grosch, Otto Dix, Monet, Manet, Renoir, Rodin, just an astounding collection. And they had originally been suspicious of Cornelius Gerlitz because on a train from Zurich to Munich that's known for having a lot of small smugglers on it. He was acting suspicious and they searched him and found 9,000 euros, so about $10,400 in American cash, in 500 euro banknotes. And that's below the amount he would have had to declare, 10,000. But because it was all in 500 euro crisp banknotes, it just made them seem a bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. And a customs official looked up and saw that his father had been, you know, an art dealer for the Nazis and and thought that this should be investigated on on moral grounds. So what was the upshot? What's the uh, the, the art collection that Gerlitt amassed and handed down to his son and was had squirreled away for all these years? Yeah, what ended up happening is it became an international brouhaha because the German government came across as so cold. There were two families uh, here in New York that found pieces of art in the collection that they could definitively prove were theirs. There was a work that the Rosenbergs, which is a a wealthy family here, the Rosenbergs had fled with documentation of one of the works, the Matisse, that was rolled up in the tomato crate. Yeah, luckily he kept all the receipts, which is kind of rare. Yeah, Yeah. Rosenberg managed to ship all of his receipts to America. And because he was an art dealer, he, you know, knew how to keep receipts and records, whereas Mm -hmm. most people who collect art at the time didn't. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then the other family was the Torin family here in New York. And uh, Peter Torin was just a really compelling story to report on because not only did he survive getting deported to Auschwitz where his parents were gassed, but he survived 9-11. So lightning strikes twice and they wanted their work back. They had proof. And the German government said he has a legal right to have these. The statute of limitations expired in the 70s. And he very publicly said he didn't want to give any of this art back. But eventually reporting pressure and also the help of the attorney general in Bavaria was sufficient to um, have him agree to sign what I broke is called a deathbed deal, where he agreed that when he died, any art that was looted from Jewish Germans could go back to them. But he was so angry at the German government for holding his works, never charging him with the crime, for all of this going public, that he bequeathed the rest of the works to a Swiss museum. What about the artist's descendants or their estates? Uh, I know these works were sold, but sometimes at gunpoint, essentially. Might they have any claim to them? For a lot of these works, the artist's estate would not have claim. What I do think is interesting is that 
many of these works we know were taken from small museums where a collector that just lived in these small towns would have said, hey, I want you guys to have this work. And they are now in the Swiss Museum. So many people are very surprised when they ask me where they can see the best German art from the Weimar era. And I don't mention a place in Germany. But think about it. Like these works were dispersed. They were stolen from these museums by the Nazis and then dispersed all around the world. And it gutted these very small, vibrant museums throughout Germany. And I think that in many ways, those museums could have a claim to get these works back from from bigger museums where they ended up. Well, Mary M. Lane is the author, and who else could take us from Bern to Bonn and through the Brouhaha's? Of all the looted art and all the history of Hitler and art, Mary, I mean this, very few people have the skill set to have uh, pulled off this book. It's excellent. Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art and the Soul of the Third Reich. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. The Ukrainian javelin boomerang. Oh, that is a name for the scandal that will not stick. Okay. The Ukrainian derangement syndrome. Nope, not going to work. Let's call it Ukraine gate. Fine, fine placeholder. Ukraine gate could not have happened without its forebearers. The whistleblower stands on the shoulders of those who stood before. There are little details that the whistleblower goes into. He writes about, for instance, the possibility of retroactive classification of his document. Quote, if a classification marking is applied retroactively, I believe it is incumbent upon the classifying authority to explain why such a marking was applied. He included that because that is exactly what happened to James Comey when Comey handed over those memos that weren't classified to legal experts outside the government. He was then hit with a retroactive classification. Now you could say, oh, Comey handed over classified documents. That was a smart stake in the ground for the whistleblower to put down. He anticipated this possibility, saw it play out before. But of course, the big influence of the javelin boomer, Ukraine gate, the big influence was the Mueller report. Think about all the lessons whistleblower learned. One, be succinct. Two, follow through. Three, have clear conclusions. To take one example, In the original Mueller report, we learned about the Trump Tower meeting with the Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya. That was when the official cover story was, oh, it's about adoptions. Okay, that's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. Adoptions meant sanctions because, remember, the Russians were sanctioned and their response was to halt U.S. adoptions. But who was doing the bullshitting in that case? The Trumps were being bullshat. But with the Ukrainian complaint, it's the Trumps who are doing the bullshitting. They're claiming Biden corruption, and that's bullshit, but it's not being done to them. They are doing it. Corruption doesn't mean corruption, like adoptions didn't mean adoptions, but it was the Trump team who was raising, ooh, uh, corruption, just like it was Vets on the Sky who was saying, oh no, let's talk about adoption. Now, maybe you could say in the Trump Tower case that Donald Jr. was a willing participant in the overall bullshit. But the vector of the bullshit has claimed, and it's worse for Trump this time. Now, it wasn't the whistleblower who invented the direction the bullshit would flow, but it does show that this case is cleaner and clearer than the old case, and also WB doesn't get in the way of the clarity. Does this, this is what I've been thinking about. This whole case 
It really makes plain what a giant fizzle the Mueller report was. I filled my head in my guest chair with so many people who spoke so highly of Mueller's thoroughness and competence. We had to do things like say, oh, imagine if this came out years ago, or imagine if this thing that Trump said on TV, he said quietly. But we had to imagine because Mueller didn't do that work for us. When it came out, I understood what he was doing. Okay, it's not up to him to indict. But he never interviewed Trump, man alive. Which is okay if it was all in a report, which showed that you don't need to interview him to get an impeachment. But guess what? That didn't happen. Mueller put out an ambiguous document, and he thrust it into a process and a political system that requires unambiguity. You know, it's a little like a relationship, right? Before you started dating him, you heard such good things. And during the courtship, he seemed distant, but there was nothing, you know, wrong. And all your friends kept saying, oh, he's such a great guy. But then it all came to a head. And he proposed, sort of, but he was saying something like, I think there's evidence that we could move in together if you want to. So you know what we did? You broke up. It didn't work out. And your friends were all like, oh, there's so much there. You can still take him up on it. He's still a great guy. And you just kind of doubted yourself. I don't know, maybe they're right. Maybe it's me. But then a new fellow comes along. Let's call him WB. And WB shows you everything that old guy wasn't. WB's clear. WB takes charge. Oh, you and WB share opinions on really important things, such as the danger of President Trump. So I would like to thank WB, whistleblower, for making us realize that our old relationship really was dysfunctional. It was him. It wasn't us. As for the new guy, well, I'm sure if our president has his way, we will soon find out something terrible about him, like he once was related to someone who knew a Democrat, or his spouse did something terrible, like running for office or using a bathroom. Or maybe the guy doesn't look like he's from out of central casting. That's a sin. All the usual disqualifiers and reason to think that WB's carefully annotated, scrupulously documented, and highly credible document cannot possibly be trusted. As Rudy Giuliani said, the whistleblower is not the hero, I'm the hero. Well, I got news. You're not the hero. But you know who wasn't the hero? Our last beau, Robert Mueller. Look, we wish him well. He still shows up when we swipe on special prosecutor Twitter. But I think we've gotten a much better guy in his place who isn't all about his needs. WB is really giving us what we need. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. His favorite American whistleblower was, of course, Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler blew the whistle on what became known as the business plot, where business leaders were plotting essentially a fascist coup against FDR, retired U.S. Marine Corps General, Major General Smedley Butler. Christina DeJosa also produces The Gist. Her favorite whistleblower from U.S. history the Air Force auditor who exposed a $2 billion cost overrun on the C-5A cargo plane. He was A. Ernest Fitzgerald, but I think history should remember him as the Ernest Fitzgerald. The gist, our favorite whistleblower, we still got to go back to Watergate, though I think he should have been codenamed Ballpoint, not Deep Throat. You know, because a ballpoint pen is used to mark felt. Oomperu da Peru And thanks for listening.